going to kick off episode 306 of Monster Kid Radio with the new song, Amor en Silencio. It comes from the band Los Surfers Compadres. My wife is very excited. I'm very excited. You should be excited. This is a new song coming from a new album that you can pre-order now or at least learn about it over at lossurfercompadres.bandcamp.com. Follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website. This is the podcast. Your listeners and I'm the host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show and welcome to the second week in what I'm calling Frankenstein February. Yeah, if you've been paying attention to the website, you see that I've even changed the graphic to reflect that. We've got some Frankenstein talk this week with my friend Frank Schildener. Now, he is the author behind the book, The Quest of Frankenstein. He's got a sequel coming, a new book featuring Frankenstein. We're going to talk with him about that book, his inspirations. We're going to dive into a little bit of new pulp discussion, some Lovecraft stuff. Even going to touch on some Robert E. Howard. And then we're going to go through our top three favorite Frankenstein Bows. It's a fun conversation. I hope you guys and gals dig it. Let's have a little bit of, of an announcement, kind of sort of maybe a tease. I want to mention at the very end of the show. But before all that, I want to do some feedback. I got some emails. I have an email from my friend Alan Trump. He's been on the show in the past. He says, Hi, Derek. Your recent show, A Mad Monster Party with Joe Stuber, got me thinking. The first time I caught it on the Late Late Show, I had been reading a bunch of the Ballantine reprints of the very early Mad Magazines. Do you remember at the beginning of the movie when they are selling Port CBs and Veeble Fitzers at the store Felix works in? Do you know what those are? Well, I think I mispronounced that. Those are Yiddish words that Mad artist and writer Harvey Kurtzman would stick into the comic stories here and there as an in-joke. Another running gag was to have one character suddenly say to another, By the way, how's your mom, Ed? Kurtzman was one of the writers on Mad Monster Party, so I guess he couldn't resist. Great show as always. Never quite clicked with me that Felix was supposed to sound like Jimmy Stewart. Maybe I need to watch It's a Wonderful Life again soon, instead of The Brain That Wouldn't Die. Okay, wait, 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 don't, don't get crazy, Alan. The Brain That Wouldn't Die deserves plenty of rewatches, but yeah, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a good movie, too, but you're out of season, man. Wait till next December when it's Christmas time again. Alan, thanks for writing in. You know, I did not catch those in-jokes at the beginning there, but then I haven't read Mad Magazine in a long time and I, I don't remember any of the end jokes i'd have to go back and reread them again uh you know if i can get my hands on them <laughs> anyway thanks for writing it Alan. you've lost the urge to experiment oh every time you touch me i go out of my mind Kept alive by experimental science, by a man whose abnormal passions inspired him to try the impossible. I brought her back. She'll live and I'll get her another body. Yes. What of her soul? How can you make of her an experiment of horror? His mad ambitions and desires threaten every woman possessing an attractive body. Girls whose measurements make them beauty contest participants. Professional figure models such as this. All are prey to his distorted desires. What's left behind that door? Horror. No normal mind can imagine. Something even more terrible than you. Horror is its ultimate. And I'm that. Behind that door is the sum total of Dr. Cortner's mistakes. He intends to kill somebody. 
rob them of their body. We've got to stop him. I have another email from Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. Hi, Derek. I really enjoyed your discussion of Mad Monster Party. Count me in as one of those who've always been puzzled by the question mark in the title. I first saw Mad Monster Party around Halloween 1987 or 88 or so. I turned on the TV and there were Rankin and Bass monsters. Where had this been all my life? Not in heavy rotation like the Christmas specials, that's for sure. Now, my pal Rob Kelly and I discussed Mad Monster Party over on Rob's Film and Water podcast, and he finally filled me in on why Frankenstein's monster is called Fang. I had no idea. Now, Joe and I talked a little bit about that in last week's episode. You go back and listen. You, you, you'll find out. Anyway, he continues, I love the film, but I do think it's a bit too long. I think an hour-long TV format would have tightened it up. You're different, and I hate to say it, the kitchen scene really dragged the movie down. Now, my kids love the Rankin-Bass holiday specials, but as I've gotten older, the pacing of this one turns them off, I'm sorry to say. Having said all that, I still have a soft spot for it. And Francesca. Wow. You guys didn't mention that she gets her clothes ripped off in the fight with the monster's mate. And how did they get away with that in a kid's matinee movie? Jessica Rabbit's forerunner, for sure. I'm a big fan of Joe's Comic Book Central, so it's always a pleasure to hear him stop by. You guys really should cover the time of their lives. One of my favorite Abbott and Costello movies. Chris. Well, I am going to have Joe back. Uh, he and I did talk off mic about what we're going to do next. It's not time of their lives, but, you know, let's make sure we put that on the list, too. Hold me accountable to that. If I don't talk about doing that anytime soon, remind me. As far as Francesca getting her clothes ripped off and not really commenting on Francesca as, as much as, well, she probably needed to be talked about. Just I mean, just look at her. Yeah, you're not the only person who kind of mentioned that. Uh, maybe the whole Phyllis Diller getting... The thing just threw us off. But yeah, I would definitely say she's a forerunner to Jessica Robert. The, the color of her hair, the way she's built, the way she speaks, totally can see that. And Rob Kelly, I definitely need to reach back out to him. We talked at one point about having him come on to Monster Kid Radio, just never followed through on it. So Rob, if you're listening, expect an email. Chris, thank you for writing in. And again, everybody, check out the Supermates podcast. I'll play a promo for that podcast here. Well, Cindy... This is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire and Water Podcast Headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. Calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman invisible plane. Oh, jeez. Well, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right. Or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed. No change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standy. <laughs> thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. I have one final email. This comes from Tim D. He's in Indianapolis, Indiana. Hi, Derek. Wanted to write and thank you for another great episode of Monster Kid Radio. I've seen Mad Monster Party a couple of times, and like you, I had initially not been too high on it. But your engaging conversation with Joe Stuber made me very eager to revisit it, which I will be doing soon. When you're able to check out Voodoo Island, be sure to watch closely for an early career appearance for Adam West, 
who I don't believe is credited. Although he appears in a scene with Boris Karloff, I recall reading in Mr. West's autobiography that he was cut into the scene and never got to act with or even meet him. Now, I didn't grow up a monster kid, but became one in spades after seeing the first Frankenstein film in my late teens. Since then, classic sci-fi and horror movies have been everything to me. But I haven't been able to similarly hook anyone around here, so it's great to find your podcast and listen to your enjoyable guests and viewer emails to know I'm not alone. Plus, I always enjoy hearing those great movie trailers. Guess it's never too late to become a monster kid. Thanks and best wishes, Tim. Tim, thank you for listening. Yeah, Mad Monster Party, I hope you dig it and the next time you go back and watch it. There are some small bits here and there you could have trimmed, like Chris was saying, or like Joe and I talked about in last week's episode. But overall, I really enjoy the movie. Voodoo Island, I still haven't gotten around to watch, but uh, if Adam West is in it, I'm excited to check it out. I wouldn't be surprised if there were a lot of movies towards the end of Karloff's life and career where he would shoot his scenes over the course of a day or two and then everybody else would shoot around that. I know there were four films at the very end of his career that were released, I believe, posthumously where he would shoot his scenes and then down in Mexico they'd shoot everything else to wrap around the movie. I don't know if Fudu Island's part of that batch or not. I'd have to go back and double check. I really don't know much about the film. And as for it never being too late to be a monster kid, man, I'm glad you're in the club. There's no such thing as being too young or too old to be a monster kid, man. We're all just fans of these movies. And you mentioned those movie trailers. I love those. I love playing the heck out of them. I'm glad you enjoy them. Sometimes I worry that maybe I play them too much. But honestly, I could just sit around and listen to those things all day long. Tim, thank you for writing in. Emergency. Batman speaking. Warning all of you to brace yourselves for big news. The biggest. Tell them, Robin. Holy surprises, Batman! It's really exciting. Soon, very soon, Batman and I will be batapulting right out of your TV sets and onto your theater screens. That's right, Robin. Our first full-length motion picture feature in color opens a whole new world of thrills. The big screen gives us more space on land, sea, and in the air to challenge the most bataclysmic collection of super criminals that ever plotted to take over the world. Number one, the Riddler. Question, who's going to make the feathers fly and knock Batman and Robin out of the sky? Number two, the Joker. Have you heard this one? It'll kill you, Batman. (laughs) Number three, the Penguin. There are two eggs this wily bird is going to scramble, Batman and Robin. (laughs) Number four, the Catwoman. Oh, you're going to see the perfect crime when I get Batman in my claws. And that's just a sample of the exciting exploits ahead in our first feature motion picture. Holy memoranda, folks. Make a note not to miss it. Good thinking, Robin. If you want to contribute to the show by email like these guys did, you can email us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. The email address is also on our website over at monsterkidradio.net, which is where you're going to find everything else you need to know about the podcast between episodes. But don't head over there yet. Well, I mean, if you can multitask, yeah, go over there now. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy the conversation that I'm having with Frank Schuldiner about Frankenstein and a whole bunch of other stuff right after this. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, 
the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the Monster vs. Monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just $2, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Since the time of Babylon, I've walked the earth, challenging the most venturesome of men. I am this sinuous creature, a killer cat. And I'm a woman, seductive, tantalizing, inviting a lover's caress. But to caress me is to play with death. I am the mystery woman of the ages, feline, fascinating. To know me is to know all my loves, all the lives I've lived, the deaths I've caused. I am the essence in woman that no man can resist. I am... Listeners, you've heard him on the show in the past, but have you been reading him? Frank Sheldon has been published in a number of books for the past, I don't know, how long has it been, Frank? When did you start? About 10 years ago is when I started getting published. It's weird. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff out there for him to read. And no, it's not weird because it's good stuff. Well, I mean, it's weird and the weird tales get away sometimes. Yes. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, b- bad segue. Frank Schildener, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Derek. Good to hear from you again. How you been? I've been good. I've been good. How is 2017 treating you so far? Well, I finished a new book just last week, so it's been a good start of the year. And I'm working on it. I'm already have an idea for the next one that's going to be really different. So I guess that's the best as a writer. That's the best way to be. Oh, indeed. Definitely. And I'm excited because it means I get to read more Frank Schoeninger <laughs> in the future. Well, that's definitely going to be happening. There's a whole bunch coming lately. So it's going to be a good year already. I first became aware of your writing with the short story Big Ol' Scorpion, and since then I've been following your short story work and your novel work. You've appeared in books like The Black Bat Mysteries. Something strange is going on. There's that uh, circus book. Was it Big Top Tales? Is that what that was called? That was Big Top Tales. And then, of course, your novel, The Quest of Frankenstein, which was phenomenal. And there's a second one coming? Yes, there is. It's coming in March from Black Oak Press. It's called The Triumph of Frankenstein. It's the continuation of the French version of Frankenstein that started in the 1950s under Academy Award-winning screenwriter Jean-Claude Carrière. And forgive me if I'm pronouncing his last name wrong. I am not French and don't have any capacity for languages. Um, but he, <laughs> he is, he wrote this amazing series of six books in the 50s, pulp stories using Frankenstein, the monster that is, um, who he renamed Garoul. Really creepy kind of name if you think about it. And Garoul is the opposite in every way from like the James Whale interpretation of the Frankenstein monster. 
he is brutal and vicious and has an alien evil intelligence and razor sharp teeth and just this terrible evil creature who wants a mate. And I wrote the quest of Frankenstein, which really, according to my, uh, amazing editor and publisher, Jean-Marc Lafissier, it was more really a series of short stories interlocked into a main tale. And he's not wrong. That's exactly it. But he also made it clear that that was not happening anymore. <laughs> you can do this once, move on, and be, write a real novel. Oh, okay. Yeah. Jean-Marc is a, a genius. I can only put it that simply. He is an absolute genius man has a encyclopedic knowledge of of pulp and French pulp and comics. He's worked in the United States uh, with some amazing writers. He worked for DC Comics and Marvel Comics, and he's written uh, cartoon episodes like The Real Ghostbusters. He's written books on the subject of Doctor Who, and he created this company, Black Co Press, where he started... Uh, translating with the amazing sci-fi writer Brian Stableford, the many thousands of pulp and horror and sci-fi books going back to like the 1700s, I believe, in from French literature into English. And he wanted to like spread it out throughout the world. And it's become a pretty successful venture, I think. And he's just an amazing human being, but he's also a tough, tough editor. And I love that. <laughs> One of the things he does is he does not hold back on me. He tells me exactly how it is. Like, you need to step up and do this because it's not going to work anymore. And he's just very straightforward. And he's pretty much, I guess you can call him a mentor since he's the first person to ever publish me. And when I proposed the continuation of the Frankenstein series, he was all in favor of it. So when I proposed a sequel to Quest of Frankenstein, which ended up Triumph of Frankenstein, I said a whole bunch of propositions to him, you know, ideas and all of that, and he shot every single one of them down. Uh oh. <laughs> I mean, total shot down. He said, okay, first, you're not writing another one of those series of, uh, of short stories. That's not really a novel, and you gotta step up and just write a novel. And second, what you're proposing would be great for a comic book or a screenplay, but not a novel. It'll just be confusing. So step back, think a little smaller, think deeper, and I'm sure you're going to come up with something better. And I did. And The Quest of Frankenstein was a great book for me, but I think Triumph is the better book. And I think it's a lot scarier, to be honest with you. And he agrees. So I was real happy with the result. Um, it takes place in South America where the monster finds a Frankenstein descendant. All right. Nancy, yeah. Named Elizabeth Frankenstein. And she and her assistant, who's this English doctor, are trying to build another monster. And he comes along to help and there's a lot of stuff happening there and it's another novel that my very good friend and publisher jim beard would say is a very dark book <laughs> because this book is dark oh man i i looked back at a couple of scenes i wrote after i wrote it's like oh my god what is wrong with me oh wow <laughs> that's the only oh, way wow. i could put it it is a dark scary novel but it's a lot better 
than Quest of Frankenstein. I think it's a real stronger book. And uh, we'll see what happens. I hope it's coming out in March, and I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. So thank you. Thank you. It's going to be a lot of fun. When we talked about Quest of Frankenstein, we talked about it being a novel, but you know, like you said, it, it seems like a connected series of episodes, which, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, I still enjoyed it. Yes. But, but the next one's going to be more what just a, a solid through uh, yeah. one story kind of piece. I don't know. Does that make sense? It is. That's exactly how it is. I mean, one of the um, best quotes, I'm not even sure who said it, was that every person is their own protagonist. So other than Garul, who could honestly care less about uh, morality in any way, everybody thinks they're doing good. And even when they do something bad, they kind of have that self-justification in them. And so there's a lot of nasty, terrible people. There is a hero in this book, though. Okay. I have to say, it's the first time in the Frankenstein novel I think there's been a genuine hero in it, in a scary sort of way, in its own way. Um, there's a hero in it, a heroine, actually, is what she is. And it's not Elizabeth Frankenstein. <laughs> okay, no spoilers, though. No spoilers. <laughs> no, no spoilers, but it ain't her. She's, oh, she's a twisted character. But this story has plenty of point of views of people and their lives, but in the sense that it's still a much tighter single story overall, because it all ties into the main story. There's not a, it's not like a series of just short tales like Quest of Rights. I really was, but that's okay. That's what I wanted to do in that story. I wanted to be closer to like a Kim Newman kind of series of short stories that he does so wonderfully well. I mean, he's absolutely one of the best at that. And he's created so many great characters and stories because of it. Excellent. And you said March is one where you can expect us to come out? Yes, this is a March release. Uh, it's been put out there. And it has another amazing cover by Mike Hoffman, just in that same Frank Frazetta kind of style that he did for Quest. I was really genuinely delighted by it when I, that got sent to me after I submitted it. Jean-Marc sent me a copy of the cover, and it was like, oh, God, you did it again. It's so good. So I was pretty happy. <laughs> Yeah, if you look up MikeHoffman.com, you can find his art page, and there's some amazing artwork there. And I think you've posted what the cover's going to look like for the new book on Facebook at one point, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I absolutely – I always ask permission before I do something like that. And I immediately say, can I spend, send this to everybody? I said, yes, of course. It'll just get people interested, hopefully. And uh, it got a very good reception. People were really blown away by how cool it looked. Fantastic. I'm sure we'll – Make sure there's a link to that in the show notes so people can check that out. And it does have this very, very cool Frazetta vibe, but it's got our, you know, our monster in it too. So, I mean, it's like two great tastes going great together. It's great. Yes, it is. Yes. Yes. So, well, let's hope. <laughs> That's all I ever say. <laughs> let's hope everybody agrees with me because I think it's this much better novel and work than Quest, though I really did like Quest. I'm very proud of Quest of Frankenstein, and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm not, but mm -hmm. I think this is the superior story, and Jean-Marc agrees with me, and I, I got to go with what he says. 
<laughs> well, he's the boss, right? <laughs> he is so the boss in this case. I mean, he he's also pretty much, you know, taught me how to be a professional writer. So, you know, it's all on him in the sense that he taught me so much over the years. Well, I'm excited and I'm so thrilled that you're having some success with this book, with these books, with what you've been doing. You're just cranking them out. Before we started talking, listeners, Frank's like, yeah, and I've got a few other things I'm working on. Like, good. Yes, we need more children are out there. Because anytime we can get a monster kid, you know, getting some material out for other monster kids to read or experience or enjoy. I mean, I'm all about that. All about that. That's how it should be. You've also been referred to as one of the legends of New Pulp by appearing in a book of the same name. So listeners, he's not just about the monsters. He's about this New Pulp. What is New Pulp? I know we've talked about it before, but for listeners who don't know, New Pulp, how would you define it? New Pulp is kind of a return to the old style of enjoyable adventure. And what it really started was, it started much earlier than most people are like to think about. It, it started when guys like Tom Johnson and people like that would take public domain characters like Secret Agent X, who actually was one I wrote many times, and just continued stories for them. Like, hey, let's write some more and publish some more stories. It became a much bigger thing in like the last 10, 15 years with companies like Pro Se and uh, Moonstone Books and Airship 27, all of whom I've worked with. And it's become a more viable niche in the fiction world. And people kind of interested in it. You can see... Some of the Moonstone versions, for example, have made it. And, well, I guess you can say that also uh, Doc Savage has become pretty mainstream, considering they have a movie coming out, apparently, about him. And Will Murray has been continuing that story. He's also written two stories where Doc Savage met the legendary pulp hero, The Shadow, as well as one story where he wrote uh, Tarzan, and, um, and then he wrote a Tarzan meets King Kong. So you can tell this is kind of a viable fictional style. It's mostly using adventure heroes, though. The Legends of New Pulp Fiction was a fundraiser for Tommy Hancock, the publisher of Pro Se, who at the time was having severe health issues. And Ron Fortier and uh, some other people did as they organized this large book where 100% of the proceeds would go to Tommy and his family. And I was one of the people in that, I'm proud to say, and I wrote a Secret Agent X story. But in that book, first it has a Doug Klaub uh, cover, and he's just one of the greatest artists in pulp. There's every style of pulp in there. There's sci-fi, there's horror, there's romance, there's westerns. It's all part of it. Westerns back in the old pulp days were probably the most popular. It's not as big in the new pulp, but it does exist. Uh, last year, there were several, including one I was in, that used spaghetti westerns as the basis. I was hoping that would come up. <laughs> I don't want to mention that. <laughs> that was one of the great joys to, to be in that book. It's called Rick Lay's Major Sabbath. And I got to write a martial art spaghetti western. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> of course I did. I was actually racking my brain, racking my brain. I was like, what am I doing? Rick contacts me and he says, well, you know, there is a spaghetti western martial arts story called The Legend of Shanghai Joe. I was like, oh God, I remember that movie. And so I watched it again and I had a moment 
that I nearly passed out. They show this scene of the guy, and he's supposed to be this Chinese kung fu expert, practicing in the in his temple on you know the soft focus to show its old times <laughs> and, and a dreamlike quality. There's no subtlety. But when he's practicing, I nearly pass out because he's practicing Okinawan karate. The moves he's doing are from another country. They're Okinawan karate, a style known as Shotokan, which has millions of people training in it, but it has no connection to Kung Fu whatsoever. So next time I speak to Rick was uh, like a couple of months later, I told him this. And Rick, who is possibly one of the smartest human beings you'll ever meet in your life, just pauses and says, Frank, you do realize there's like maybe five people on the planet that would actually recognize that or pay attention to it. <laughs> it's like, okay, Rick, you're right about that. But it was like, it was still funny to me. So I had a lot of fun <laughs> writing that. Um, and that's what New Pulp is all about. It's about trying things, uh, characters that take place in modern day. Uh, my friend Derek Ferguson writes a series of adventure stories with a character named Dylan which is a modern kind of pulp adventure. There's even comic strips now. There's a great one called Rick Haywire that uh, you can find uh, on gocomics.com. And it's kind of in the style of the comic strips like Jungle Gym and all of that. And it's very tongue in cheek. So there's, it's a growing concern out there. Dynamite Comics has kind of devoted an entire world to it. So, that's what New Pulp is all about, and that's how I got started. It's just, I guess I'm kind of sideways to it now with this, uh, the horror direction I've been taking lately. I'm not familiar with Rip Haywire, but I want to real quick check online, gocomics.com slash Rip Haywire. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very tongue-in-cheek. It's been going for a while, but I only discovered it recently, and I'm a, a thorough fan. And you can even go to the way they're writing uh, the Dick Tracy uh, strips these days, the current work on Dick Tracy strips is back to the old days of Dick Tracy, but also acknowledging the new. I mean, right now, Dick Tracy is working with the spirit, the legendary spirit of the, uh, the Will Eisner character. And he's had adventures with Annie, Little Orphan Annie and Daddy Warbucks. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a growing thing. I think it's a kind of return to the old fashioned, enjoyable style that, like, you know, that you saw in the seventies, eighties, nineties of the Indiana Jones, where you know where the characters are heroes. They're not anti heroes, which is kind of getting boring, in my opinion. Actually, I was struggling with that with my last book, trying to write a supernatural novel where without going to the standard, well, the character is a vampire, but he's good. It's like, <laughs> ah, that, ain't, that ain't working. I was, I grew up on Universal and Hammer, vampire be evil. End of discussion. Don't discuss it any further. <laughs> I, I, I just got so tired of these nice vampires. Oh, God, give me a break. But they're so sparkly and not, uh. Oh, sparkly, don't get me started. I mean, let, let's be very honest about the sparkly vampire. Just take Bela from Return of the, uh, of the Vampire Tesla. He would uniformly kill every vampire and werewolf in those films without even breaking a sweat. 
It's like ju just Tesla's pure evil scariness. He'd just kill them all, and that'd be all right. You're all done. <laughs> it would be that simple for him. So it, when I look at this modern ethos of the, uh, you know, that people want to be vampires, like no. What are you doing? Didn't you watch these movies? <laughs> Didn't you read these books? These are not the good people. These are the crazy, dangerous these, ones. These are the villains. They're not sexy. Yes, They're not yes. attractive. They've got bad breath, probably. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, the closest they had to a sort of anti-hero close to that was Blade. And Blade was known to be crazy, and he wasn't a vampire until recently and blade in the marvel comic series was a scary crazy man who may have been a little bit immune from vampires but he still wasn't one and he was crazy thank you for saying that i, I sometimes wonder if maybe i made that up and i know we're going way off topic listeners but anyway uh when the first blade movie came out and the comics had all started to meld themselves to what the movies were doing and they gave blade all these vampire traits i thought no wait a minute that's not what Blade always was, right? I'm not going crazy, so thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that. One of the good things that Marvel did in the last few years is they put out something called the Essentials Collections, and they're black and white versions of different series. They just didn't put the color back in it, and they did Tomb of Dracula in four. And Blade is a character that started in these old Marvel Tomb of Draculas, and he has... The ability to not be killed by a vampire, like by the bite and turned into one, but he's crazy, he's dangerous, and he's a little scary. He has some normal characteristics. He has a girlfriend, he tries to live a normal life, but he's this dangerous character who is human and still a very great danger to Dracula in every story. They've had, they had some brutal, vicious fights, but he was not jumping three-story building, you know, off the top of a three-story building and landing on his feet with no problem. That wasn't the way the character was played. He didn't need to be. And I, I think it's part of the modern style where people, you know, they're envious of the fact oh, that he can turn into a bat. It's impossible to beat him. Well, you know what? I think Peter Cushing proved you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Many times. Peter Cushing beat the Christopher Lee version of Dracula. It was one of the scariest of them all with a pair of candlesticks. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, that kind of proves it. You know, Peter Cushing in the Star Wars movies. I mean, now he's been in two. Uh, he didn't have any powers. But he was the one bossing around Darth Vader. Mm -hmm. Dracula has always been beaten by humans, not by other vampires. You know, it's a modern thing that I, I kind of rebel against. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to have somebody with sort of abilities, you got to stop thinking, okay, let's make them just as evil as the hero, uh, as the villain. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just not the way I think things should work. And I guess that's from the years of watching Hammer Horror, especially. You know, it goes back to the movies that we watch, uh, the, the classic uh, movies that we watched, and of course the classic pulp too. You didn't have a lot of good guy vampires running around or good guy monsters running around in the classic pulps. Coincidentally, we're actually recording this, I believe, on the birthday of my favorite writer, pulp writer. Is it Robert E. Howard's birthday today? It certainly is. Robert E. Howard didn't have a lot of monsters that you wanted to buddy-buddy up with. When Conan came up against a monster, well, with the exception of maybe one or two, it was a monster. You took it out. Yeah, no, and, and uh, also, 
he used to believe that, you know, witches and warlocks and all those things were, you know, you're maybe powerful, but, a, uh, but you know, a piece of steel is stronger. And mm-hmm. that was the ethos through all of his books. In fact, my favorite Robert E. Howard character's character named Steve Harrison. Yes. More modern. I love that hero who he does these adventures where he fights characters who practice like black magic and all of that. And his only weapons are a fist and a gun. He doesn't have magic powers of any kind. But if you want to add that to a story, it's, it's workable. It's always workable, but you got to do it along, uh, the lines of a character that is not just as bad as the villain. And that's kind of, maybe it's because I was a new pulp guy first. That's the way I write horror is that if a, a good person is good, they're not like sort of good. <laughs> right. There, there is a more pure kind of black and white approach to who's a good guy, who's a villain, but that's not as restrictive as I think people might think it is. You can still have some great, entertaining, fun stories in these things. We're talking about Robert E. Howard, you know, Harrison, he's just a good guy. I mean, he's, he's got his foibles here and there, but he's a good guy. And, it makes it exciting to see how he's going to cope with these things. Um, Solomon Kane is another character of Howard's that sometimes does get a little too supernatural for my taste, but still, I mean, he's just a guy going out there fighting monsters. And I've said it before. I love the monster hunter type story. You give me a good monster hunter story and I'm all in. I, I love that stuff. Well, you're going to love then my next book that I just finished, uh, last week when we're taping this another book for black coat press i wanted to create something new and i did and the character it's well let me just tell you the title of the story it's called napoleon's vampire hunters (laughs) i think you've told me this before and that's just amazing i love it it's uh it's a pair of heroes in this story if if more come i hope they will a pair of heroes who are working for Napoleon Bonaparte and they are going up against a very scary evil vampire. And it takes place in both 1795 and 1804. And one of the characters is a character created by one of the earliest vampire writers and major pulp writers of the period, a guy named Paul Favaro, who created the first kind of series of stories about a crime organization where they're the centerpiece of the story. They were called the black coats. And he wrote this whole series of stories and his son wrote some of them too, I believe. But he also wrote three vampire stories, which are earlier than the Bram Stoker and very different in quality. One is called the vampire countess in which the hero of that story is a man named Severin, Jean-Pierre Severin, who knows Napoleon Bonaparte very well. And he fights this vampire. He's a sword expert. He's a, a sword master. That's how he knows Napoleon. So he was created before I got there. And then I created a character whose last name is well known to every monster kid. His last name is Karnstein. Ah, nice. Baron Franz Vordenberg Karnstein. Now, Vordenberg is a very important name in the Karnstein series because in the first book, Carmilla, uh, Sheridan Lafarnu, the person who killed the vampire 
in the old days and his ancestor in the modern day is Baron Vordenberg. And this character is a Vordenberg Kunstein. He's very different. He's a hero. He's a scary kind of guy in his own way, but I struggled with him because I didn't want to make him what's known as a dampier, which is a half vampire, which is right out of the old mm-hmm. witch hunter novel uh, stories back in the 1500s. Uh, it said that they were, they hunted vampires. They're called dampiers. They're also supposed to be cursed creatures. And I didn't, I definitely didn't want like werewolves or warlocks or any of those things that we were just discussing. So I came up with a twist that I'm not going to say. Ah, <laughs> uh, don't tease me, bro. Come on. No, no, I could, no, no, no. no, no. We want to keep listeners hanging out. You got to look in. It'll be coming out sometime, probably the end of the year next year, because I just finished it. And it's got to be edited and then handed in. But this character is quite unique, Franz Karnstein. And uh, it takes place. There's a lot of history there. It takes place at the time of the battles between the Royalists and the French revolutionaries, uh, when the French revolutionaries were in charge and the Royalists had a chance of taking it back, as well as when Napoleon was going to be made emperor. So it's two periods of time, and it, yeah, I'm hoping it's fun. It was a great time to write, and it took me about about three, four months to write. So I had a, good, I had a lot of work on that. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be fun. Just Knowing you and and hearing even more about it, I'm even more excited. But 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 the next book is the Frankenstein book, and I want to go back to the Frankenstein thing because, well, we're talking about Frankenstein this month. I love Frankenstein. The Frankenstein story, I think, is classic. It resonates with people on so many different levels. We just got done talking about how much we we don't like our monsters to be the good guys, but in some Frankenstein stories, it's not his fault. He's the victim, you know. And just it's an interesting takes on the Frankenstein monster. I've seen it done so many different ways. Although I don't know if I've ever seen Frankenstein as a martial artist. And I'm curious, you're a martial artist, you're a teacher, you're an instructor. If Frankenstein's monster had to adapt some sort of martial art skill, what would that be? What what martial art would he know? Uh, Kyoshin Kai, which is a Japanese style created by my teacher's teacher, actually. Oh, okay. The master of my karate school, Shihan, which is, means master, Shihan James Amorosi, trained under the creator of this system, a man named Masoyama. And Oyama had, by the time he died, about 10 million students in the late 90s. And probably the roughest, toughest, hardest system of martial arts ever created. Okay. One of his students actually was Sonny Chiba, who played him in three movies, who played Oyama, his own teacher. So... It, the style is one of it, it, it. I'm going to actually use a Japanese word. I'm not big on you know throwing that kind of stuff out, but it's called ikeni hisatsu, which means one touch death. Which means if you throw a punch at somebody, it's meant to devastate. You're not there to dance with them. You're there to break them. Okay. And it means that you might take a, a shot so that you can get in and finish it on one shot. And his students traveled pretty much around the world and and fought people and they were just impossible to beat because they were so brutally tough but they held to a very japanese um samurai standard so they weren't like it wasn't like watching cobra kai in the first karate kid movie that style would be perfect for a frankenstein monster because the ability to take pain and punishment is that what the, one of their hallmarks and devastating power directed properly 
through them would mean that they would be probably among the most unstoppable fighters on the planet. Well, now I want to see a Frankenstein martial arts movie. <laughs> there you so, go. So, so somebody get on that, okay? Yeah, somebody has to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, if anybody's going to do it, it would probably come out of China because they are so clever at creating these unique styles of martial art movies. So I'd like to see that. But you never know. You never know. Korea has come up with some unbelievable horror and fighting movies lately, and uh, we'll see. In the meantime, though, we've got plenty of movies to watch Frankenstein fight. Mm -hmm. Frankenstein has had a number of foes over the years. You like that segue? huh? Almost didn't even need to mention it. There we go. (laughs) You got it in there. But he's had a chance to, to come up against a number of different foes over the years, mostly in film, because that's what we talk about here. But, you know, over the novels, too, and in different stories here and there. Uh, there was a novel a few years ago in which Frankenstein fought Jack the Ripper. When I say Frankenstein, I the monster. He fought Jack the Ripper. I mean, he's fought a number of, or come again, I don't know, been challenged by a number of different foes over the years. In your novels, mm-hmm. he's fought different monsters. And I thought it would be fun to do our top three Frankenstein foes. All right. What do you think? I love it. I'd, I'd like to start because I want to end on the guest, cause best for last, that sort of thing. We're going to do our top three. And we haven't done a top three in a long time here on the show. Uh, because Monster Kid Radio is only like an hour-ish long, we only do a top three instead of a top five or top six. And it's tradition. It's just what we do here. But we are going to have some honorable mentions, I suspect. There are some that maybe didn't make the list that I'm going to want to talk about anyway. Now, for me, and I'm probably stealing something from your list right off the bat. <laughs> I'm sorry, man, but one of the things that you and I love are luchador monster movies. And the Frankenstein monster has turned up in a movie called Santo and Blue Demon Against the Monsters. And you sold <laughs> my number three. <laughs> I did, I did. Okay, well, then we're both on the same page here. Here we are. Yeah, Share so one. it's a 1970 film, so a little outside the traditional Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse, but come on. I don't you know. It's Luchadors, it's Monsters, it's Sando, it's Blue Demon. Frankenstein's not the only monster in here. I mean, you've got a vampire, a mummy, uh, a cyclops-looking thing, a wolfman. The wolfman's actually pretty vicious in this thing. Yes. He, he does something terrible to a child, and that's yes. awful. awful. And this is the Frankenstein that's got the Fu Manchu mustache and drives a convertible, right? Right, it is. And the, when I first saw that one, and that was like in the 80s when videotapes were a big thing, uh, I found it at a store in Manhattan called Video Underground. And my friend and I saw it, and I was like, oh, we have to see this. He's like, what if it's in Spanish? I said, it doesn't matter. We must oh, watch on. this. And it turned out it had <laughs> bad, bad subtitles that sometimes you couldn't even read. But we're watching this, and it was like, oh, my God. Frankenstein monster with a Fu Manchu mustache and driving a convertible. We're in heaven. We've achieved it. <laughs> you, you don't need to understand Spanish to understand these movies because they speak the international language of wrestling. It's fantastic. Yeah. These movies are just so much fun. And we've done luchador movies here on the show, and, and we could take this conversation down a completely masked path if we wanted to, but stay focused on Frankenstein. Frankenstein's not the only monster in this, like I said. And I don't think he actually gets as much screen time as, say, some of the others Definitely in this, not. but... You know, he's just cool to look at. With that mustache and driving the convertible, I would totally have like a model. If there was a model of that car with the Frankenstein in it, that would be that Frankenstein. Or, in, I don't know, I'll probably mispronounce it because I don't speak Spanish. He's built as 
Frankest, I don't know, F-R-A-N-Q-U-E-S-T-E-I-N in that film? Frankenstein or something like that, yeah. He's played by Manuel Leal. I'm probably mispronouncing that as well. But you and I have seen him in other movies because he's also a luchador called Tina Blas. Oh, well, that makes a lot That's of him. sense. I did not yeah. know that. Tina Blas, the darkness is what mm-hmm. uh, the man from, from beyond uh, had an amazing muscular build, too. And he looks cool. The mask is cool. And he'd done a couple of other movies as well. He played Satan in The Mummies of Guanajuato. Yes, he did. And I believe he teamed up with Mel Moscaris at least once in one of the films, I, I think. I believe so. I believe yeah. so. My friend Robert Dorff would remember better than I do. He, he's much better at that than I am. But yeah, he. Did. I'm pretty sure he did. And um, he's a great character, kind of a Martian manhunter for the luchador world. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, uh, if you really bring them down to their basis, when you get the luchadors, like, you know, Santo is really phantom from the old comic strips that have been going since the thirties. Uh, mm-hmm. Blue demon is really, is really Batman. Mil Mascaras is Doc Savage. You know, it, 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 they don't hide the fact that they stole the concept from places. It just works that way. And it works so well, especially when they get to fight the monsters in the Frankenstein. So that's my number three. That's your number three. Yeah, but I can actually have had an alternative number three and oh, two okay. and one just in case. Just <laughs> okay. in case we had that situation. I do have another number three. All right, all right. My number three in in this terms was the Frankenstein monster clone in the Japanese Frankenstein movies. Frankenstein conquers the world. That's right. Two all-color, all-action hits. Here are the seven wonders of the world rolled into one fantastic adventure. Frankenstein, born again to rule in terror. A monster unleashed to conquer all who stand in his destructive path. Frankenstein conquers the world. Stars Nick Adams as the American scientist versus Frankenstein, incarnate. With the strength of a thousand men, a phenomenon such as never seen before. See Frankenstein Conquers the World, astounding on the giant screen. Oh, man, I knew that was going to come up, so I purposely kept that off my list because I knew it was going to come up. I had that as an alternative number three because that movie, as I probably told you in the past, that movie changed my way of thinking of the monster because I'd always really considered it from the universal point of view, which Hammer has really based their concept on the universal point of view overall. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas this was so different when you're dealing with a monster that not only is the Frankenstein monster, just a heart that grows because of the, because of a nuclear blast, but also gets a second one and they start fighting in in the kaiju traditions. It's like, this is just, the bizarrest, coolest thing going as a kid. Mm-hmm. I own it. I love it. I watch it every year, but it's still so demented. It was going to make my honorable mention list if it didn't come up. I just assumed it would. The monster that he fights in that, the foe, is Baragon, who does turn up in a couple of other kaiju films as well. Unfortunately, Frankenstein didn't really continue into too many other kaiju films down the line, which... It's unfortunate. I mean, I know we had War of the Gargantuas, which is kind of sort of a sequel, but beyond that, Toho really didn't play with the Frankenstein monster all that much. No, nope. They didn't really uh, seem to enjoy it too much. Uh, it didn't fit. I think they honestly wanted to, you, they'd rather you've used King Kong, but there was all yeah. sorts of rights issues with that, and they just mm-hmm. walked away from it wisely, I think. 
What's interesting to me when I think about the Frankenstein and the Toho films is that Frankenstein Conquers the World did so well in Germany that a lot of the German titles for Toho releases, when they were released over there, Frankenstein was worked into the title somehow. But Frankenstein became like shorthand for monster. And it didn't have to have the Frankenstein monster, but they would put Frankenstein in the title to indicate, yeah, there's a monster in this. And I thought that was kind of interesting to see, considering Frankenstein's roots and all. I did not know that. You see it in a few posters here and there, and I try not to go on eBay much these days looking at movie posters, but I can't help it. Yeah, <laughs> I stumble across those. So I've picked Luchadors. You've picked a giant monster for our favorite foes so far. Mm-hmm. And I'll share the Luchadors with you because, come on. you know. All right. <laughs> we can drop mine to the honorable mention then. The, there we go. There we go. Well, I'm going to go traditional with my number two pick. Okay. Partly because it really – the movie itself kicked off – the idea of a shared universe for monsters. I love Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and I know they don't fight very much in the movie, but when they do fight, when they do get it on at the very end, I love it. So one of my favorite Frankenstein foes, my number two on this list, is going to be the Wolfman. But he doesn't understand. There's a curse upon me. I change into a wolf. Listen to me, I saw my father become obsessed by his power. He died a horrible death. There's no need for us all to storm after her. She'll come in if I ask her. Why should we treat her so fancy? She's a Frankenstein. Good choice. I really enjoyed that. I still remember the first time I saw it at this library in South Orange, New Jersey. And I was fascinated by the idea of two monsters fighting, and it didn't even bother me that there wasn't much to it. Bela was not a great Frankenstein monster, unfortunately, at that point, just because he was kind of past the ability to do the action moments. Mm-hmm. But he was still Bela, and uh, Lon Chaney did a great deal in it. The, you know, He was just so good at the character. Lon Chaney is the Wolfman, yeah. bottom line. And I think that's probably one of the, the hardest sells that we're going to run into if they do another Wolfman movie with this new Universal relaunch. If they have a Larry Talbot character, it's going to be really hard. And I know a lot of people like the Del Toro Wolfman character, Benicio Del Toro's portrayal. <laughs> but, man, it's just so hard because he was Larry Talbot. He was the Wolfman for me. It's just so iconic. And to see him jump on Frankenstein and do this. I mean, it's, it's fun. And I could watch 90 minutes. I think I could watch 90 minutes of just the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster going at it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, could, but you know, it's a fun movie for me. Well, you know what? We'll write, we'll write Lucha Underground. Maybe they'll do it for us. Add, add us a Wolfman character and a Frankenstein character. Yeah, why not? You know, they do it. They have a, they have a living dead guy called Mil Muerte. So, you know, why not? <laughs> they have a dragon, a man from outer space, it, a dead dude. Why not? Why not at this point? <laughs> do I start a wolf group? You know, nobody will care. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so that's my number two. What's your number two, sir? My number two is one of the most demented horror movies of all time. Uh Uh-oh. Dracula versus Frankenstein, the Dracula month. Yes! Uh, It had to be it. They have never lived before as they live now. One man has already died. The other was never born. Both exist in a world between life and death. Both long to be human. Neither can ever be. Dracula versus Frankenstein. 
Ten dead men's bodies were used to fashion Dr. Frankenstein's infamous creature. Tens of dozens of victims have kept Count Dracula alive for three centuries. Only one of these beings will survive their meeting. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Brand new thrills, brand new horror, brand new shock. Dracula versus Frankenstein in color. Rated GP. <laughs> oh, God, what a movie. I still remember seeing it, uh, that Al Adamson dementia. And I look at it again later, and it still doesn't make a lick of sense, but I love it. But that has to be one of the most brutal fights in monster history. It really is. I'm, the two of them, yeah. It's an odd film. Oh, God, <laughs> yes. Well, it wasn't meant to be a monster movie. They no. started it as a biker flick. And it went, it, it, they, I don't know why they switched it, but Al Adamson had his own way of doing everything. And they switch it, and then they got this odd-looking guy who changed his name to Zoltan, and he became Dracula with an afro. <laughs> and they added, like, this uh, echoey voice that I never forgot as a kid, and a ring that could shoot lightning. And it was just such a strange, demented movie. And apparently, the original ending of the film, Dracula just points his ring at the monster and blows it up. And it got a very poor reception, so they wanted to reshoot it with that brutal fight at the end. But the problem is, the actor that they had to play the Frankenstein monster in the movie, who was this actor who was seven foot four inches tall, wasn't available. So they got this other stuntman who was about 6'5", an imposing guy with a gut, to play the monster in this last fight scene, which is why, the, if you look at it closely, there's like no resemblance to the original character other than the potato head that they called the mask. <laughs> oh, come on. It looked like a giant potato head. And it was such a demented movie, but when... You have Frankenstein fighting Count Dracula and Count Dracula just tearing him apart. I, I never forgot that even as a kid. It was on Creature Feature. How it got under Creature Feature on regular TV, I still don't know. <laughs> you know, it's such a bizarre film. And over the years, I've made no bones about it. I'm not kept this a secret. I love this film. Me too. And, and I've gotten into playful discussions with people over the years about whether or not it's a good movie and and how terrible Lon Chaney was in it. And I mean, it was his last film. Lon Chaney had his demons and it's unfortunate. But, you know, in the end, he still gave us a monster movie. And, you know, we've got 4AJ Ackerman in a small cameo in this, which really may have been more of a publicity thing because then it guaranteed coverage and famous monsters of film land <laughs> to have Ackerman in the movie itself. You got uh, J. Carol Nash in the film. You got Russ Tamlin in the film to go back to War of the Gargantuas. You've got so many things in this movie to enjoy and that they were able to make a monster, I'm going to say monster rally kind of movie out of a biker film. Yep. I think there's something to be said there. And the Dracula, Zandor Vorkov, real name, Roger Engel. Real name, Roger Engel. I always loved that. Uh, Zandor. Yeah, Zandor. <laughs> I thought it was Zoltan. I never remember that. It's, yeah, he, it, it was, there was a strange factor to it. The woman who played 
the sort of heroine in it was actually ended up marrying Al Adamson, uh, hmm. the producer. It's kind of funny. It's probably one of the movies that has the most connection to the old Universal because uh, J. Carroll Nash was, was in it and he was in House of Frankenstein as Daniel the Hunchback. Mm-hmm. And it had, you know, Lon Chaney Jr., who is one of the only actors to play the Frankenstein monster, the Wolfman, Dracula, and the Mummy. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody else has got that. I mean, Christopher Lee played the mummy, Frankenstein's monster, and Dracula, but he never played the Wolfman in any way. So yeah, it was a very unique kind of story. And it had um, the little person actor, Angelo Rossetti, I think is his name. He played mm-hmm. a part in it, and he was in the Bowery Boy movies with Bela Lugosi. Mm-hmm. Where he played like Bela Lugosi's mini me. You know, there was a lot of weirdness thrown in there all at once, uh, which you expect from a movie made by Al Adamson, who kind of, that was his style, uh, died really badly. Poor guy got murdered and buried under like, uh, some, where his, um, hot tub was and the guy who right. was doing it is like still in prison for it. Terrible, sad story about that. Uh, but, you know, he made these, this movie, the Dracula versus Frankenstein, that it, I can't call it a good movie, but I still love it. It's an enjoyable film. It makes me smile every single time. And about a month ago, the editor of Scream magazine, Daryl, oh, I forget his last name, and it's Scream, S-C-R-E-E-M. I know there's another one spelled more traditionally. He posted on Facebook, hey, check it out. I just got this Blu-ray, and it's a Blu-ray of Dracula versus Frankenstein. Oh, that's- so immediately I'm like, where did you get this magical thing? And he, he, It's now available. You can now buy this movie on Blu-ray. Now, the special features, I think, are pretty much the same from the DVD. But just to have it on blue, to have it upconverted just a little bit, it's awesome. It's it's awesome. So it's out there, and yes, I did spend my limited funds to buy a copy of (laughs) Dracula vs. Frankenstein on Blu-ray. Xander Vorkov just is such an iconic-looking Dracula. As far as I'm concerned, he only did one other movie for uh, Sherman, and that was A Brain of Blood, and it's a pretty small part in that. Uh, I've seen that as well, of course, but (laughs) John Bloom played the Frankenstein monster in that film. And, you know, he did a Star Trek film. He was one of the aliens in Star Trek six in the prison planet, I believe, and Mm -hmm. did a few other things here and there over the years. Uh, He's no longer with us. I don't think. No, Uh, he he died, I believe, in 99. Part of the problem uh, is when you're giant like him, like 74, unless you have the modern technology that will help like a Shaquille O'Neal or somebody like that, it's very, very hard for your body to be able to process anything Mm -hmm. and it becomes debilitating on the heart. And he he was seven foot four, though. Yeah. Yeah. He's a big guy. Yeah, that's for sure. He's a big guy. Well, that's a a heck of a a number two there. Um, which kind of sort of ties into my number one. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear this then. <laughs> you know, I, I actually, I cheated a little bit because to me, there are two big monsters. I mean, you look at all the different monster movies, there are two ones that loom large over the entire monsterscape. One is Frankenstein's monster, one is Dracula. And anytime you put those two together and they fight, I'm 
on board. And I don't care if it's Dracula versus Frankenstein. I don't care if it's them having a disagreement and having to sell me Frankenstein. I don't care if it's in the Monster Squad from 1987 or it's from any other of these films. You put the two of them together and they fight and I'm happy. So I'm just going to make a large generalization here. Anytime Dracula fights Frankenstein, Dracula, that's my guy. I love to watch those two go at it. I don't have a particular film, although Dracula versus Frankenstein is pretty darn cool. <laughs> but anytime you have them going at each other, I'm on board. You know, heck, House of Dracula, you kind of sort of have a Dracula-like thing, struggling with the Frankenstein-like thing. I just It's fantastic to me. I have to agree with you there. It is a spectacular thing. And uh, well, I'm not spoiling. It's been out a couple of years. The Quest of Frankenstein, Dracula mm-hmm. is an enemy force against Garul. I even wrote them actually fighting in a short story for Tales of the Shadowman, uh, which is a series of books uh, for Black Co Press that a lot of very famous writers have written in a couple of people who've written like Doctor Who episodes, stuff like that. Uh, some really amazing people have been in it, including Michael Moorcock. You know, I'm in the same book as a Michael Moorcock. Unbelievable. So, uh, <laughs> no, you, you're allowed to take a moment after saying that, you know, just kind of enjoy that moment. Yeah, I'm in the same book. Go ahead. It's like, wow. I, and, <laughs> you know, Brian Stableford, who I've been a fan of since I was a kid. I mean, these just, it's just unbelievable when I'm in the same book as some of these guys. And, the first time I wrote Garul, the Frankenstein monster, is he fights a version of Dracula, but not a traditional version of Dracula, just because I have to be me. He fights the Dracula from the great Hammer Shaw Brothers classic, Legend of the Golden Vampires. Yes. It was a fun story. I read that story three or four years ago. I read that story to Pulp Fest, the pulp convention that takes place in the summer. It used to be in Columbus, Ohio. Now it's going to be in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I read that story and people were having such a fun time because the Garul versus Dracula was one story. The Seven Golden Vampires are fighting a series of martial artists from the movies, including Bruce Lee and Gordon Lau, all of these great characters. <laughs> and I had so much fun getting a chance to write all of these bizarre characters fighting. And I even had a fun moment where there's a very famous actor, Lo Mang, who was really amazing musculature. He was a good martial artist, too. He knew his stuff. When he was a hero, he always got killed, like, early. He always got killed really early in it. So I did what you have to do on those. He yells, I cannot be beaten. And he immediately gets stabbed to death. <laughs> you know, it's just, I have to play the play, play it along. Nice. So I'm having a little, yeah. And, it, and it's Garul versus that version of Dracula, which was definitely not one of the best, scariest versions. Had a lot of eye makeup, if I remember right. <laughs> but still cool. I mean, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, those movies, I've been trying to catch myself whenever I talk about some of these movies that may not have the highest production value or a highest budget. Oh, it's a bad movie, but I like it anyway. I've been trying to catch myself from saying that because, you know, the bottom line is, is if we enjoy them, if they make us smile and laugh and give us 90 minutes of just a good time, they're not a bad movie. They succeeded. And I don't care if I can see the seams or Xandor Vorkov has that echo voice or Lon Chaney can't speak because of where he is in his history and his life or, or whatever. I don't care. They make me happy. They're a good movie as far as I'm concerned. And the Seven Golden Vampires, that's a good movie. That's a fun movie. That's a great I movie. I love that movie. All right, so my number one. Mm-hmm. 
And mine is a general one too. Oh, okay. That it worked out. That's kind of funny that we both had similar thoughts, but I had a different direction. So it's not a copy this time. Okay. Okay. My number one is the many versions of Baron Frankenstein as mm. the greatest foe of the monster. Mm-hmm. In all cases from the book through the stories, the Baron's lack of acceptance in there is a major factor to the monster becoming a problem. And uh, whether it's Colin Clive's insane reactions because he had his own demons himself or Peter Cushing, who really started out like thinking he was going to do good, but there was a twist side to him and by the end he was just creating monsters and killing them or throwing them overboard if you will <laughs> you know yeah i mean if you think about it son of frankenstein monster was there and basil rathbone was both his savior and his killer mm-hmm. in the same film 20 years ago in the barony of frankenstein a monster Created by man, stalked through the country, ming and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns. And fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Benson, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale, Universal Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. Basil Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions. In his mind, the monster mania. It's alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments I were... know, I know. I too thought we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. Lugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. You see that? They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill, grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron. An arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson, her young beauty a magnet to the menace around her. I hate it here, Wolf. I'm terribly afraid all the time. I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers. one of the major issues that the monster had to face. And I've always found that the greatest foe of the monster was his creator. 
I agree. And you said something really interesting there, his lack of acceptance of what he's created. Some might say the lack of responsibility for what he's created does lead toward Frankenstein's monster doing some villainous things. Not because he's a bad guy sometimes, just he's acting out. You know, he didn't have the, the nurture and what he needed to not go that route. And I think Dr. Frankenstein, whether, like you said, he's a Clive or a Cushing or really any of them. There's been a number of Dr. Frankensteins over the years. He's Frankenstein's biggest foe. He really is. Part of it goes really right back to Mary Shelley Mm -hmm. when he reacts so poorly to his creation. And then when his creation says, you know, create me a mate and I'll go off and live quietly, he starts to do that. Then he gets a look at it and says, I can't do this. I can't create this monster, you know, a whole race of monsters into the world. And he destroys the supposed bride. It created the whole monster ethos began there, right? There's where it all started with his lack of ability to act properly, if you will. And that's part of the problem with the Baron and or Dr. Frankenstein, whatever version you're going to do. They create fine. They just don't have any desire to do anything with it. Mm -hmm. And it becomes the reason the monster becomes twisted at times is every time he creates something, he just sort of, oh, it's not perfect. Well, I'm just going to cast it off. And that's kind of a problem in the, when the creature is the eight foot tall, you know, can destroy you with one slap of its hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And because of it, the monster starts out, you know, if you think about it, let's start from the universal point of view. The monster starts out very alien. I mean, think of that first scene when we saw the monster walking when he's in the scene. Mm-hmm. And there's just something so terrifying and alien in the way he moves and looks and silence that there was something definitely different there. But instead of trying to help it, he eventually just sort of abandons it and moves on. And while well, the monster's not about to let that happen. And by the Bride of Frankenstein, he's had some ability to learn and accept and he still has to threaten his creator to get anything done. Right. So that's always been my, uh, my thing with this series is where science goes mad. You know, that's, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. So there's my number one, the the Baron, Dr. Frankenstein himself. Uh, Yeah. I mean, he is. And if, you know, as time has gone on, the character's gotten to be one of the scariest characters in the business. I mean, about, mm -hmm. Think about Peter Cushing by the end there. Holy God. Oh, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. Paramount Pictures presents Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. See the eeriest transplant in the history of horror. His brain came from a genius. His body from a killer. His soul came from hell. It's the newest and most frightening Frankenstein ever filmed. All shot. In color, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parents. Now scream! By the end, you know, after the first movie or, or two, he stopped even trying to pretend that he was out there to do good. Right. You know, a lot of it was motivated by revenge. I mean, the, the one where he had the uh, the hypnotist helping him 
that one, it was open. I'm just going to get back at every single person who I think wronged me yep. for do, for catching me doing the things I was actually doing. Pretty much, yeah. He's driven by revenge or just flat out ambition, curiosity. Right. Does it because he can. Right. Just let's see what I can do, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was there was a craziness factor to him by that point uh, that I kind of interpreted as, uh, you know, if you think of it as a story arc through all of it, despite the different writers, the character started out pretending to be a good man, but after a while, the evil things he did, he just stopped even bothering to try. Yes, that's true. That's what H.P. Uh, Lovecraft sort of did with his version of the Frankenstein story in the reanimator stories with Herbert West. Herbert West sort of starts out a decent person wanting to do good but by the end there he's just creating monsters he doesn't care anymore yeah that's true that's true (laughs) so yeah always going to be my number one foe of the frankenstein monster is his creator now there are a couple of honorable mentions uh, that i want to mention for me do you have many honorable mentions that you want to throw in there just one or two okay just one uh go ahead well I'm going to mention uh, there's kind of like this alien-like thing that he fights in Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster that I dig. Do your eyes dare witness total terror. Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster. Is it for the first time on the screen? America's missile might mobilized against annihilating invaders from outer space. We have come here to this planet for one purpose only: to acquire breeding stuff to repopulate our planet. See the kidnapping of the Earth maidens for the love-starved slaves of the sterile planet. Very good. We have done well, Nadia. I am pleased to confess you are satisfied. I will be satisfied when we have enough more like her to commence phase three. See the terrifying invasion of the Beach Party. See a United States astro robot become a creature of death. For the first time, see Earth Horror versus Space Terror. Frankenstein meets the space monster in Futurama. Yeah, that was fun. You know, I mean, it's a fun movie. Uh, you know, James Karen is in the film, so you got this <laughs> little bit of, you know, some real solid acting in this thing. But and, and do they ever really call him Frankenstein? No, I don't think they do. They, they name him Frank, but still, yeah. you know, you get a little bit of Frankenstein action, a little bit of sci-fi action. That makes me happy. But the one that I really did want to mention. <laughs> and this has more to do with me than the quality of the film, and, and I don't care. He fights Jesse James, man. Uh, that was one of my honorable mentions. Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. You take Western and you take monsters and you mix them together, and I'm on board. 
Jesse James, he fights him. <laughs> it's great. I love it. <laughs> yes, I, that was going to be one of my two. Okay. Um, the other honorable mention I've o- I always like is uh, Dwight Fry's character Fritz in the first Ooh. Frankenstein. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. (laughs) To shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. (laughs) To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! It's a short part, but it was a definite part in what happened. You know, tormenting the monster with with fire Mm. and getting killed for it. Yes. But it also has sort of established the hunchback assistant throughout the stories. Through many stories, not just Frankenstein stories, but any mad scientist story now. Or even I've seen Dracula have hunchback assistants in various stories. Uh, he's a definitive part of monster mythos. This hunchback guy, whether his name is Fritz or Igor or Yetch or, or any of them. Mm-hmm. Or Igor, I suppose, or any of them, I, really. Or, yeah. There was even one in uh, a Spaghetti Western for a few dollars more. It's played by Klaus Kinski, just known as the Hunchback. Yep. And it all comes back to the Fritz character as an influence of evil. Even in the, the rotten Van Helsing, they not only kept the a Hunchback, they gave him the name Igor and gave him the Bela Lugosi dialogue from the Universal series as Igor, where, you know, you think you get Igor, but Igor gets you. Yeah. That all comes back to really to Dwight Fry creating this malicious, twisted little man and doing such a good job of it, which he was really, he was a sad man for in his own right, but he had such an ability to play these twisted little characters. I would have loved to have seen him do the reanimator. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Dwight Fry as the reanimator would probably one of the, would be one of the scariest movies ever made, especially if it was done by like Todd Browning, who has that love of the scariest of all movies, Freaks. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't considered that, but that'd be amazing. Well, if you think about it this way, think of the Freaks, which is still, to me, one of the scariest movie ever made. Mm-hmm. And think of the half creations of the reanimator and then mix the two up with Dwight Fry. In the oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Somebody go and see if the story that Freaks was based on was in the public domain so that we can do something with that. <laughs> there you go. Yes. <laughs> That is really, I mean, I, I've thought about that. It's like he was such a terrifying creature in his own right. But in the end, it's a small part, so it really doesn't fit uh, in the top three. Right. But you know what? It's so iconic. And we could turn this into the Dwight Fry Appreciation Hour real quick because that man, 
he had a short life. Uh, he only mid forties, 44, I think is when he had a heart attack and passed yes. on, but he had such an impact on, on what we love here on monster kid radio, Fritz, and then Renfield in Dracula. I mean, those two alone, he's horror royalty, monster movie royalty. Uh, yeah. So Fritz, Fritz is the man. I, I like it. Yeah. Like Fritz it. was my, uh, honorable mention in addition to, uh, you know, one of the ones you had there. So it really works out that, uh, I've always found that it's easy to overlook the small parts when you're growing up, but it's better to start looking at them as you get older and just, you know, considering the, uh, the, the Dwight Fry laugh of Renfield or, oh, or yeah. the, or, or the sneering kind of looks that Fritz was giving the monster as he poked him with the, with the fire brands. It was like, you know, it makes the movie better. And when they lacked those kind of extras, the movie kind of suffered a little, even when it was a good movie. Mm-hmm. No, there's that one shot in Frankenstein that is both terrifying and so sad where Fritz is shoving the torch in Frankenstein's face and the camera is placed as if you are Frankenstein seeing this happen to you where he's shoving the fire in the camera lens and you're, it's a POV shot for Frankenstein's monster and it's terrifying, like you said, but it's also so disheartening because you are now feeling the fear and just the cruelty of the world as, as Frankenstein's monster, as Fritz is shoving fire in your face. It's just terrifying. Right. And to me, to me, when they didn't have things like that in like, say house of Frankenstein or house of Dracula, the movie suffered a little. I don't say I don't like it. I mean, house of Frankenstein, I just saw it actually last night. It on the Sven show. It's a genuine pleasure to watch those movies. And there's so much good to see, but it, sometimes a movie is made a little better by the, Minor characters. Sure. Take the later version of The Mummy with Brendan Fraser. The character of Benny, who assists the, the monster, the mummy, was mm-hmm. so iconically enjoyable. Yes, he wasn't a hunchback, but he might as well be. You know, it was the same kind of twisted, cowardly, backstabbing character. And he was so much fun that his non-appearance in the next movie kind of suffered. You know, the movie suffers because of it. You need those little tiny parts sometimes to make it, make it flow a little better. And the later days, they didn't have it in favor of, usually in favor of pretty girls, which I couldn't really argue with, but it didn't help the story as much. <laughs> uh, Benny, played by Kevin J. O'Connor, who I believe is an underrated actor and certainly somebody people should be paying attention to. He's a great actor. Now, unfortunately, he did play Igor in Van Helsing, uh, the 2004 film. But he's also, you know, this is outside of MKR's wheelhouse, but he's in one of my absolute favorite Clive Barker adaptations in Lord of Illusions. I love that film. And yes, he he's, oh, he's great in that. He's really good in that movie. He's also a monster kid. I saw him on Sven Gulli once, and he, he loves those movies. I stumbled across him. Uh, he wasn't a guest. He was just somebody going to the show. Uh, years ago, I saw him at a Horror Hound weekend, just on the floor with everybody else. Oh, that's funny. Just checking things out. It was back when he was doing a show with uh, Patrick Swayze on TV. And so, I mean, that to kind of give you a time frame. But yeah, it was great. You know, I ran into him. I chatted with him a little bit, told him I loved him in a couple of different movies and tried to mention one that I'm sure he doesn't get talked to about. I forget which, which one it was, but I did try to talk to him a little bit. Uh, yeah, cool I know that actors kind of appreciate when you try to make the effort. I, I actually met uh, Jonathan Harris, who played 
Dr. Smith in mm. space. And he gave this 45 minute lecture, which was hysterical, where he was telling how he got different stories, uh, d- jobs. I mean, he got these different jobs and he's acting out all the parts. I mean, it was really a genuine pleasure. And most of his stories were about getting this job and getting this job. And he's acting like Erwin Allen and all these other actors and directors. And it's really funny. And then the minute he opens it up to questions, most people are not asking him any of these questions, which you know that's what he likes. He's doing his best. So Mm -hmm. I'm sitting in a very close row by pure chance. And I look into the program and I realize – Oh, right. He played Lucifer the robot in the original Battlestar Galactica. Ooh. So I raised my hand and he picked me pretty fast. And I said, how did you get the job as Lucifer in Battlestar Galactica? And the man started like glowing. And he's nice. like, gave me like 10 minutes of acting and, uh, and, you know, playing the part and how he interpreted it. And it's like, and he, then he said, thank you. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, that was my lesson then. If you can give these guys more of what they, more unusual, they'll have more fun with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then Harris taught me that little lesson. That's cool. I completely forgot because when you think of him, you think, you know, lots in space, but no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, he was, uh, he was huh. Lucifer, the, the Lucifer, the backstabbing robot who he explained to me. He interpreted him as playing like a pussycat in, in his own way. He said, a very bad pussycat. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's awesome. Nice. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I think we're pretty much on the same board when it comes to the foes of the monster. Oh, I think so too. I think so too. I mean, he's, when you think of the powerhouses, the the big guns, when it comes to Monsterdom, I mean, he's one of them. He's right there at the top. Him, him and Dracula really are the two big guns there. The, the the hierarchy, I suppose you could say, starts with those two and everything else kind of trickles down. So if you're going to fight Frankenstein, you got to be up to the task. I am glad people are trying different interpretations. Uh, on the whole, I see much better work with the Frankenstein monster than I do with Dracula because I see a lot of weirdness comes out of the Dracula vampire thing. Like somebody wrote a lot of rape in it. And I know that was the intention originally, but I don't need to read that. Yeah. That's, you know, that kind of takes it away from the fantastic. I feel like, right. Which, which I mean, I'm not saying I don't want to confront the real world or whatever. I mean, I I real, I live in the real world. I get it, but I don't know. I want to have that sense of fantasy and just a little bit of escapism and and to bring some of the stuff in. Although it can be done to good effect in other stories, I just don't need it in my Frankenstein must be destroyed or any of these other types of things that we're talking about. Right. I really just want a story. If you want to show me something different of the monster, great. People are doing good stuff like that. There have been like a, you know, where the monster is like fighting gangsters and stuff like that. Hey, give me a shot at it. I'm willing to look. And yet, in this entire conversation, we're talking about Frankenstein. Neither, neither one of us mentioned Blackenstein. I don't know how that happened. Oh, uh, there's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can't all be black, yellow, or they can't be. They can't all be Doctor Black and Mister Hyde. So come on. Oh, that was a demented one, but I liked it. <laughs> all right, so we could just keep talking for hours about all sorts of stuff, but man, you got books to write. I do. I, I, I got to gotta get you back to writing some books because then I get to read some books. So again, the new book is coming out in March. And there's a pair of short stories coming out I talked to you about in the past, Johnny Rich. They're coming out in the next couple of weeks. Excellent. So we'll make sure uh, there's links to your Amazon author page in the show notes. And then Black Coat Press is the publisher of the new Frankenstein books. We'll make sure there's a link to that as well. Uh, 
in the past, I believe the book was first released at Black Coast Press's website and then eventually made its way to Amazon. Is that that's remembering that right? It's correct. And is that how it's going to happen again this time too? Yes, it is. Okay. That's All right. They try to do it. So make sure you get that, listeners, because you know more books by Frank Schildener means more books come from Frank Schildener. So there you go. I can only hope. Uh, do you have any uh, conventions or appearances or anything you're doing this year that people I'll might be able doing, to meet you at? I will. I'll be doing Pulp Fest at the end of July. Okay. I'll be doing Pulp Fest at the end of July. I should be on stage at least once uh, talking to people. Fantastic. Well, I've never been to Pulp Fest. One of these days, one of these years, I'd love to go. Uh, but yeah. it's, a, it's a fun convention. It's a lot of – it's a great convention. Um it, this year it should be pretty good. It's, it's in a new location, the same place that they do Monsterama, I believe it is, and uh, in Mars. Uh, oh, that's Monster Bash, man. Monster Bash, right? Yeah, no, and that's a great location. They're doing it in the Monster Bash Hotel, huh? Yeah, they are. Wow. And this year I'll be there, and I'll be there probably next year unless something turns up. Um, and next year is the 100th anniversary of Philip Jose Farmer's birth. So uh, me and my friends from Meteor House will be doing a lot then. Fantastic. Well, best of luck to you. I hope 2017 is amazing for you, Frank. And I appreciate you coming on. And we'll have you back on down the line. Thank you for having me on Monster Kid. I I love Monster Kid Radio, and I hope to be back as many times as possible. I'm sure there's plenty for us to talk about. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Frank. Bye, Derek. Check out Frank Schildener on Amazon. His last name is spelled S-C-H-I-L-D-I-N-E-R. Or just follow the link in the show notes. You can check out all of his books. He's also represented pretty well over at Black Coat Press at their website. There will be links to that in the show notes as well. Frank, thank you for being part of the show. I hope everybody checks out the upcoming books. And listeners, between the time that Frank and I recorded this, and now he has released something else. It's brand new. It's from Pro Se Press. It's called Johnny Rich. Satanic Spies, and other musicals. And I'm betting that if you're a fan of the Hammer film, The Devil Rides Out, you're going to enjoy this one. So go check that out while you're waiting for the new Frankenstein novel. Frank, thanks again. Deep in the doctor's chamber of horrors, living victims supplied the serum for his experiments. So fantastic and unbelievable that you'll have to watch every moment of brain of blood to see for yourself. With the mind of a madman seeks vengeance. His body died. His brain was saved for the most unholy experiments. The brain of a dead man lives in a creature of horror. Thank <laughs> you.
blood of the virgins and turn them into zombies. seen the seven brothers and their one sister in action against Dracula. a superstition. Now there you are wrong. The power of darkness is more than just a superstition. It is a living force which can be tapped at any given moment of the night. Why? On one night of one year should these people live in mortal fear? who knows he must fight the devil's power to the death. Oh my God. Don't look at the eyes, Rex! Eyes, eyes, once filled with love, are consumed with fear. For Tanith is now promised to the devil. Listen carefully to what I say. This is Makata, the devil's chief disciple. Your will is leaving you, slipping away. The Devil Rides Out, from bestseller author Dennis Wheatley's famous novel, fills the screen with a special kind of visual terror. What do you think, quickly? Back to back, join hands! You will hear his evil. You will feel his evil. You will see his evil. No! 
we once catch sight of his face. You know, I did just play a trailer from a Hammer film, so now is probably as good a time as any to address some of the comments that have been coming in through Facebook and email about what's happening with 1951 Down Place. Now, that's the Hammer Films podcast that Casey Criswell, Scott Morris, and I launched a couple of years back. Actually, we launched it before I launched Monster Kid Radio, and it was a lot of fun. Had a blast doing that show with those guys and watched a lot of Hammer movies that were brand new to me and really enjoyed taking Scott down the Hammer path because he hadn't seen very many Hammer films up until that point. Now, he and I have watched a bunch of Hammer films together with Casey, but about six months ago, the podcast went silent. A number of things happened, which we'll get into down the line, but I do want to let people know that Scott and I are talking about bringing the show back. Nothing's been set in stone yet. But there are talks happening. Casey will probably not be part of the new show, not for any reason other than he's got other things on his plate right now, and that's fine. Casey and I and Scott are all still tight, and we also love our Hammer movies. It's just he's got other things going on. So stay tuned. 1951downplace.com is the website for that podcast. Hasn't had a lot of activity there, but as soon as something happens, we'll make sure it's posted there or on the Facebook page for 1951downplace. Thank you for everybody for keeping in touch and wanting to know what's going on with the podcast. I'm glad that you guys and gals dug what we did while we were doing that show. C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. Nick Fury. Grand Moff Tarkin. Captain America. Lando Calrissian. Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Honeydew, Podcast. Syndrome, Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. the swiftness of a deadly cosmic ray, the Earth is invaded by indestructible moon monsters. Their ghastly mission, death for all humans. What astounding technical developments are being made to protect mankind? Robot Monster brings you an actual preview of the devastating forces of our future. 
unsuspected revelations of incredible horrors that will terrify you with their brutal reality. There is no escape from me. Fool humans, there is no escape. Monster Films, The War of the Gargantuas, and Monster Zero. See the two mighty Gargantuas battle to the death. And on the same program, Rodan and Godzilla join forces to destroy the deadly Monster Zero. The War of the Gargantuas and Monster Zero, both in color. Rated G, general audience from United Productions of America, a subsidiary of DEI Industries. If you're in the Portland, Oregon area this upcoming weekend, if you're going to be visiting or you live here, well, you might check out Wizard World Portland, especially Friday night, because there's a panel happening Friday night, moderated and run by our good friend Sean Hode. Sean's been on the show in the past. I really need to sit down with him and just give the movie Robot Monster a good talking about with Sean. That sounded awkward. He'd probably write it a lot better than I can because he's a great writer. Anyway, he's moderating the panel, Gods and Monsters, H.P. Lovecraft's Horrifying Creatures. It's happening at 7.30 p.m. Friday night, and I've been asked to join him on the panel. And I'm going to try to record it as well. So if you're not in the area and you want to hear it, well, stay tuned because I'll play it on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. But if you are going to be at Wizard World, I'd love to see you. I'll make sure I'm wearing a Monster Kid Radio shirt. Kind of hard to miss. I'm also going to be going there on Saturday for a good chunk of the day with Tom Doffel, another friend of the show. Again, Monster Kid Radio t-shirt. I'll have my portable recorder. I'll look like I'm having the most fun in the room trying to find some monster content at Wizard World Portland. Again, that's this upcoming weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Friday, Saturday are the days that I'm going. And if you're going, I'd love to see you. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for tagging along for the ride. I've had a blast talking about Frankenstein with Frank Schuldiner. I love talking with Monster Kid authors. A lot of my friends, a lot of my guests that have been on the show are writers. And next week is no exception because we are currently scheduled to have Dwight Kemper on the show. Now, Dwight is the writer behind, well, three incredible novels. Who Framed Boris Karloff? Bela Lugosi in the House of Doom? and The Vampire's Tomb Mystery. These are period pieces, and yeah, the first two titles of those novels are exactly what they're about. Bela Lugosi's a character. Boris Karloff is a character. The Vampire's Tomb Mystery is kind of a part three to this series, but he had to change a name, and he addresses that in the introduction to the book. You don't have to read these in order. You can read them out of order. I did. I still had a blast. They're great books, and probably talk a little bit about that with Dwight next week when he comes on to talk about Frankenstein 1970. Karloff is back. Karloff, Karloff, Karloff. The one, the only king of monsters returns to the screen as the demon of the atomic age. Frankenstein, 1970. Boris Karloff as Frankenstein, 1970. Reincarnated in the twisted body of his infamous ancestor. Perverting the terrifying wonders of nuclear science. What kind of dealings do you have with the director of the morgue? But even the cyclotron sealed in his subterranean vaults cannot complete his foul creation, for which he must have throbbing vital organs transplanted from living beings. Two people are missing, and I want to know why they haven't come back. The one, the only, Boris Karloff is waiting for you. Frankenstein, 1970. 
That episode next week is going to wrap up Frankenstein February. Yeah, I know there's more than three Thursdays in February. But, you know, I've got other content that I'm sitting on. I've got a conversation with Greg Starr about The Man Who Laughed. I've got a conversation with Scott Morris about The Car. I've got The Invisible Man Returns with Jeff Owens. We've got so much that we want to get to. So stay tuned. And watch MonsterKidRadio.net because that's where I'm going to make these announcements. Or on Facebook. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. You can like the page, join the group, and just keep on top of everything going on here at Monster Kid Radio Mansion. Well, it needs to be like a sound effect of a bat going by or something when I say that. Maybe a, a thunder or a lightning crash. Uh, I don't know. Just, just imagine that I did that. Here at Monster Kid Radio Mansion, you can reach us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call in and leave us a voicemail. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. If you have a comment or thoughts about this episode or any previous episode or any upcoming episodes, well, I'd love to include you in the mix. Depending on when you listen to this podcast, there may still be time for you to contribute to Joshua Kennedy's Kickstarter, Theseus and the Minotaur. As of this recording, which is Wednesday night, there's 42 hours to go, so there's still time. He's still trying to get to his budget goal of $8,039. He's still at $1,653. So come on, I want to see that movie. You want to see that movie, right? So go support Joshua if you can. And support any monster kid out there, really. I mean, buy Dwight's books, Frank's books, Steve's books. Watch Chris Mim's movies, Joshua's movies. I mean, we're in a golden age of monster kid projects. So much out there to enjoy. And I hope to talk about it all here on the podcast. So please, stay tuned. iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, any other pod catcher. If you are a user of iTunes, please consider giving us a review over there. And I'll talk to everybody next week. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Amor en Silencio. That's from the band Los Surfer Compadres. They're a surf band out of Monterey, Mexico, and they've got a new album coming out next month. In the meantime, you can check out this single by going to lossurfercompadres.bandcamp.com. Check it out. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Mm-hmm.